From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Recall efforts have been dropping like flies, but activists say they'll continue to push back against a state government they believe has run roughshod over people's rights. They will be watching, and they will never, ever remain silent. We ask a former leader of the Colorado GOP if the recalls are worth the political capital. Then, when a Colorado governor closed the state's southern border, keeping U.S. citizens out. He referred to them as aliens, indigents. The same kind of thing that you read in The Grapes of Wrath was going on in politics in Colorado. Later, beer lovers take note. What everybody thinks of as American craft beer isn't really American. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. It's been open season for recalls in Colorado. No matter how decisive the victory, no winner of an election is entitled to violate the rights of citizens guaranteed by the Colorado Constitution and the United States Constitution. Governor Polis, who was elected last year with not much over 50 percent of the vote, seems to have forgotten that. A supporter there of a failed campaign to oust Governor Jared Polis. They announced on the steps of the state capitol last week they didn't have enough signatures to get on the ballot. Three other recall attempts have also failed. Two this week of state senators, an earlier one of a rep, all Democrats. So it would appear these Republican-driven efforts have as much punch as the Denver Broncos' offense. But is it possible the GOP is playing the long game? For perspective on that and other political developments, Ryan Lynch is here, founder of the Denver consulting firm Polestar Strategies and the former executive director of the Colorado Republican Party. Hi, Ryan. Hello. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I want to say that another state lawmaker from Greeley resigned before a recall campaign could go any further. Right. So that leaves one outstanding a group hopes to oust Senate President Leroy Garcia. They're still gathering signatures. Is this sour grapes from sore losers, do you think? I, I, I suppose that's one way to say it. I think really what these recalls reflect um, is, is a pretty overwhelming sense of anger and frustration on the part of many Colorado Republicans, even some unaffiliated voters, as a direct result of the outcome of the last election. And, and the outcome of that election was it gave trifecta control of the state government uh, to one party, the Democratic Party. And and that's a pretty helpless feeling uh, when you know that any piece of partisan legislation can, pro- in most cases, breeze through both chambers um, and, and, and onto the governor's desk. Of course, we saw examples of how that is not true, for example, with repealing the death penalty in right. Colorado, right. which shows that Democrats are not united on right. every issue. Um, yes, there were, there were the vaccination bill. Um, there, were, there were a couple other bills that that never made it through both chambers. And so, yes, there, there, there were many cases where uh, often bad legislation was, was stopped before it got to the governor. But you think that this is a sign of Republican frustration. Do you think it's the appropriate way to express that frustration? It's not the way that I would have channeled that, that anger and frustration. Uh, but it's hard for me to just outright condemn you know, the actions of uh, local activists because, you know, I, like, I understand their anger and their frustration. Personally, I would have preferred to see 
um, that energy channeled into, um, you know, a more of a robust grassroots effort on on the on the 2019 municipal elections and then going into uh, the 2020 elections. So if it were up to me, that's that's how I would have how it would have channeled that energy. You see energy and I suppose resources, meaning money as somewhat finite. And there are some important elections on the horizon, I'm hearing you say. Yes. I mean, it strikes me that some of the lawmakers they tried to recall have really persuasive biographies. You've got Brittany Pedersen, who's been open about her mother's struggle with addiction. It's informed her policymaking. Tom Sullivan, who ran after losing his son in the Aurora theater shooting. I mean, strategically, if you look at the personalities here, do you think these were good choices? Um, there was no strategy and that was kind of, kind of a big part of the problem Mm. is why they were unsuccessful. Um, this wasn't some organized central effort on the part of the Colorado GOP or some sort of outside organization. Uh, instead these were, uh, well, if it were, if it were the effort of a, of a centralized group of people, they did a pretty poor job, but, um, instead these were, were organic, uh, grassroots efforts, um, like I said, from individual activists throughout the area, um, throughout the state. And they were unsuccessful, I, I think, for, for three reasons. One, they, they lacked an organization. Uh, two, they had no funding. Um, in any campaign, you need funding to be successful. Uh, and, then, and then three, they lacked a cohesive message. So, so why were the 2013 recalls successful and these weren't? Yeah, that's. I'm glad you brought those up. So these were the recalls that came after certain gun bills had been passed. These were successful and they resulted in a Republican takeover of one chamber of the state legislature. Right. Uh, so the folks that were organizing those efforts uh, really centered the messaging around a single issue, and that was gun rights. Uh, there were some bills by the... Um, again, the Democrat-controlled legislature um, that many felt were impeding on Second Amendment rights. And they really focused in on, on that single issue. And what that did is that enabled them to have, have a base of support, right? So if, if gun rights, if the Second Amendment was your key issue, um, then you were primed to be uh, recruited to volunteer for these efforts, to donate to these efforts. And as a result, uh, these efforts were successful. Whereas this time around, there wasn't like a single issue that these organizers were were pointing toward. Right? They were they were this bill or that bill or a hypothetical bill that, as as we talked about, never made it to the governor's desk. Um, and so it's harder to really circle the wagons when when you're throwing six in the wind, essentially. Hmm. Uh, a Republican lawmaker, Jack Tate of Centennial, says he wants Colorado to reform its recall election laws. And he has support from Tom Sullivan, again, who is the subject of one of these attempted recalls. Uh, I should disclose that you worked on Tate's 2016 Senate campaign. Yes. Uh, our own Ben to Berkland, a statehouse reporter, has uh, reported, in fact, that a significant change to the recall process would require both constitutional and statutory measures. Correct. Constitutional changes, of course, need two thirds votes to pass and then be referred to voters from, I don't know, conversations you're having with fellow Republicans. Do you think that's plausible uh, for a piece of legislation to get through? Yeah, um, that, that would reform the recall petition process. I, I suppose it's it's possible kind of like any piece of proposed legislation early on, um, you know, it strikes up the conversation. Um, Within within the caucus first, and then um, between both caucuses, and I think 
you know, if they can find some balance, then then I then I would say it's possible. Um, you know, there's some states where in order to recall an elected official, there has to be some sort of criminal malfeasance, uh, fraud or um, something to that effect. Uh, and then, of course, in this state, anybody can can pull petitions to recall a legislator. Um, so do we find some balance in between there? I, I suppose it's possible. It's often true that legislation requires several years of debates. Correct. Conversation before it becomes a reality. Ryan Lynch is our guest, Denver-based Republican strategist, former executive director of the Colorado Republican Party. Uh, some have posited one final question for you about the recalls, um, that there there's an underlying benefit to them. You gather signatures, you gather names of people who could be supporters of some future campaign. Now, uh, recall organizers against uh, Polis, for instance, say that wasn't the driving force. Here's Karen Catiline, who worked on the Pedersen-Lee recalls. We didn't do it for data mining, but the valuable idea of being able to identify people who are just as angry about what's happened in this legislature as, as we are, it's valuable to know who those people are. There's nothing illegal, nor should it be. Everything in politics is identifying your voters. Everything in politics is identifying your voters. Very briefly, Ryan Lynch, do you think that these recalls achieved something, uh, I guess, just in terms of identifying potential voters? I I mean, perhaps. I guess it would depend on on where that data ends up. Um, Like I said, this wasn't an effort from the Colorado GOP, so it's not like uh, the data that, that that was gained from these recalls is therefore then just transferred into our overall data platform. So I, I guess we don't we don't really know. Right. It, it speaks to that decentralized nature. Of right. This. Right. OK. Uh, you argue that the recall efforts, the frustration that spurred them will carry into the 2020 election and, and perhaps be of some benefit to Republicans in that regard. Yeah. Uh, I think of Senator Cory Gardner. Cook political report rates that race a toss up. Uh, you are a GOP strategist. What do you think is Gardner's best path to winning re-election, uh, given how unpopular the incumbent president is in Colorado? Uh, a poll in July by Magellan Strategies shows uh, most voters here, 57 percent, disapprove of the president. What do you think? Well, look, Cory Gardner is, in my mind, uh, the most impressive campaigner I, I think I've ever encountered. I mean, the guy is a, the guy is a workhorse. Um, you know, he's he's likable. He's a good speaker. Um, he more than more than anything uh, stays on message always. Right. He, he it's very hard to get him um, away from from his message. Doesn't take the, the bait from reporters often. And, I, and that's invaluable. Right. As a Political strategist myself, I mean, you dream of candidates that are, are that message disciplined. I mean, and I'll so, say that some reporters would say not taking bait, but not answering questions. Well, right. You can't, you can't, get, you can't, you can't get in trouble if you don't answer those questions, I suppose. <laughs> okay. But um, in any case, he, you're not going to get that that 30 second soundbite out of him, uh, of him contradicting himself or saying something wrong. And uh, that message discipline is 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 invaluable. And, and so... You know, in part, Corey needs to just be himself, and and uh, that led to his success in 2014, and it could very well lead to its success in 2020. On top of that, they had the most robust field program I think 
we've seen in Colorado since Obama 08. And, you know, they, they were everywhere. They hit every door three times, every phone five times. I mean, th- these guys were uh, impressive in their ability to reach out to voters. And so a combination of, of um, Corey's personality and uh, a robust, effective campaign, I think, could uh, push him over the top in 2020. Do you agree that it's a tough road? Of course. In Colorado right Absolutely. now? Absolutely. Every, every, I mean, every statewide race is going to be difficult. It's just the nature of, of, uh, of Colorado. Uh, whoever wins the Democratic primary uh, in the Senate race from a field that now includes former Governor John Hickenlooper, it seems that one of the issues they'll pounce on is the recent decision to divert money from military bases around the country to build more of a wall at the southern border. Uh, it appears $8 million in construction funds at Peterson Air Force Base in Colorado Springs will be diverted, for example. Now, Senator Gardner had previously said all of Colorado's monies would be protected. What do you make of this? I mean, the administration perhaps putting Gardner in this position. Uh, well, it's certainly not a good thing. It's not a positive thing. Uh, I, I would give Corey the benefit of the doubt that he did everything he could to ensure that um, military funding in Colorado wasn't decreased. Uh, and, and it should be said that relative to some other states, I mean, the, the decrease in Colorado is very low. That said, uh, Corey, according to Corey, if you, according to Corey, there there were some promises made on on the part of the White House that uh, no funding would be diverted from Colorado. Supposedly, it's it's that was a promise to uh, a previous allocation of funds and not and not a current one. Um, I don't think that's an acceptable answer to Corey, and, and I have every confidence that he's going to do everything he can to ensure that, that that funding is restored one way or another. Ryan, thanks for being with us. We appreciate it. Of course. Ryan Lynch, Denver-based Republican strategist, former executive director of the Colorado Republican Party. He joined us to discuss the recalls and the road to 2020. Border security is in the news a lot these days, namely at the southern border, which previously President Trump threatened to close. Well, now the story of when Colorado closed its southern border, turning away migrant workers from other states. This was back in the 1930s. The closure lasted 10 days. And Alex Hernandez of the Denver Public Library dug into this history and sees relevance today. Hi, Alex. Hi, it's nice to be here. I think it's safe to say that this is not well-known history. How did this happen? I certainly didn't know anything about it. I started digging into some of our different immigrant clipping files. There was one that just involved aliens, uh, which I expected to be immigrants from foreign countries. And it turned out that the aliens they were describing were people from other states in the country. So these were American citizens? These were American citizens. Coming from other states, Mm -hmm. what were the circumstances? So this was in the middle of the Dust Bowl during the Great Depression. Obviously, there was a lot of pressure on people, not just to get away from the dust, but to find work. And traditionally, we had accepted a lot of migrant workers for seasonal farm work into Colorado. What do you Uh, mean accepted them? In other words, if they're U.S. citizens, they get to come here. You would think that. And, of course, the first thing that came up when this thing happened was the constitutionality. So during the Dust Bowl, this is a period of of real economic strife, right? Mm -hmm. I can imagine that migration patterns would have changed. But draw a clearer line for us between why Colorado might have closed its borders 
to U.S. citizens uh, and the Dust Bowl. So we had a governor at the time, uh, Big Ed Johnson. Edwin C. Johnson. Yep. For whom the Johnson Tunnel is named. That's not Lyndon. I didn't know that. Yeah. Anyway, so what does Governor Governor Johnson do? So he's tied to the first America First movement. And that kind of extended from uh, him being a nationalist to also wanting to close the state just for use by Coloradans. So he, he thought that only Coloradans should have Colorado jobs. So what he wanted to do was declare martial law and seal off the southern border because we were getting a lot of people from Oklahoma, from Texas, from New Mexico. A different southern border than the one that's yeah. in the news today, but a southern border, no less. Absolutely. And these were folks who saw opportunity in Colorado. Right. Particularly in the beet fields. Sugar uh, beets, during right? During time. Yep, absolutely. This in northern is, Colorado. In addition to cane, this is a way of getting sugar is mm-hmm. from sugar beets. And so we had greater promise than, say, Oklahoma. Right. Plus, Oklahoma was still suffering through massive dust storms. Uh, Parts of Colorado were, but the northern parts where we had a lot of the sugar beet farms, uh, it was less of an issue. This migration is coming. The governor sees it, and he doesn't like it. Is the message that they would be taking jobs from Coloradans? That's directly the message that he sent out. Okay. Uh, He referred to them as aliens, indigents. The same kind of thing that you read in The Grapes of Wrath was going on in politics in Colorado. I'm just curious, were these white people? Were they Americans of Mexican descent? Like, can you help us understand the demographics? There were still some actual migrant workers coming in from Mexico, as they always had. But even in the most sensationalized news stories, they really didn't mention that at all. They talked about the hobos invading the state. When the uh, checkpoints were set up, there were stories of people informing the militia that, for example, a a truckload of Texans was on its way and their intent was to stop them. Well, let's get to the the kind of brass tacks of this. So martial law is declared and you made reference to checkpoints. Mm -hmm. Describe those. There were over 300 miles of southern Colorado border and all the major arteries coming into the state. They had set up signs stating martial law, so they, they would stop any vehicle coming in. They also had permission from the railroads to check people coming in by train, and it was pretty much at their discretion. If you looked like you had money for business or tourism, they might let you in. And if you didn't, the suspicion was, you're coming here for opportunity, we're going to turn you away. Yeah. But that seems like a pretty inexact science. Oh, very much so. This only lasted 10 days. 10 days. I'm guessing it was not terribly successful. What were the circumstances of its demise? Obviously, New Mexico was not very happy because we relied on a lot of their workers um, for seasonal employment. There were trade groups, businessmen in New Mexico who were already starting to organize boycotts of Colorado. Did any businesses in Colorado who wanted labor object to this. The uh, sugar beet farmers, again, began to worry because they were going to rely on seasonal labor, as they always had, coming into the state. And that was looking like more and more of a problem if this uh, blockade kept up. And so was the claim that migrant workers were taking jobs away from Coloradans that's the claim this is all based on. Did you find that to be a false claim? I mean, what can you say about it? 
I mean, there's not a whole lot of figures to support it. I think one of the things that undermines the veracity of the claim is within about a day uh, that the the blockade was started, the governor claimed that something like 1,200 jobs had been saved. And that seems like a really dubious claim within 24 hours of a policy being put into effect. What brought this to an end? Did Johnson cave in? Was there a court fight? What? It appeared that he caved in. I'm sure people around him told him that this was just not sustainable. And I mean, the constitutionality argument on its own, you would think would be enough to make him back off of the policy. Do you know of any other chapter like this in U.S. history? Nobody else, I I don't think, was declaring martial law. But we did see similar things in uh, California at the time. And uh, one of my colleagues actually reminded me that in The Grapes of Wrath, the border check is mentioned. And they were actually having border counties, not the Mexican border, but California's borders with other neighboring states. And this is, of course, where The Grapes of Wrath takes place is California. So they were deputizing LAPD officers to man checkpoints on the California border to check out any vehicles coming into the state. And I think the pretense was agricultural checkpoints. Uh, But basically, they were doing the same thing, turning away anyone who looked like they had no money. Okay, I'm curious, Alex Hernandez, uh, how you think this history resonates today? Were there kind of aha moments? Yeah, I mean, it, it certainly jumps out that this continues to happen throughout our history. And when people are stressed... Whether those stressors are real or imagined, and certainly the Great Depression was a real stressor. As was the Dust Bowl. Absolutely. Demagogues can come around to exploit that, and we see people's sense of their in-group get smaller and smaller, and their sense of the other uh, grow and grow. And oftentimes we see the other manifest uh, with racial differences or ethnic differences, sexual differences. And in this case, it was it was just other white Americans being scapegoated by white Americans. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. Alex Hernandez of the Denver Public Library, who dug into the history of Colorado closing its southern border in the 1930s. And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with why most American craft brews aren't really American. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News. The state of California legalized medical marijuana first, and they did it in 1996. But what a lot of people don't know is that that came directly out of the AIDS epidemic of the late 80s and early 90s. The guys always wanted to smoke weed because it was the thing that the guys noticed that made them feel immediately better. What medical marijuana owes to the LGBTQ community. On the latest episode of On Something, subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. You're with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. What happens when a woman is raped but police don't believe her and even charge her with false reporting? That's the premise behind Unbelievable, a Netflix series that premieres Friday. I know this is hard, but I need to ask you some questions about what happened. He tied my hands. He said if I screamed, he'd kill me. No signs of forced entry. Doors and windows were locked. No DNA. Not a single neighbor saw or heard a thing. He brought a blindfold, but nothing to tie her with. Would a shoelace even hold her? You think Marie made up the attack? I'm pretty positive that it happened. 
pretty positive or positive. They just kept asking me the same question. How come your story doesn't add up? I wanted to go home. I don't have a victim here. It's bogus. She made it up. This series is based on a Pulitzer Prize-winning investigation by ProPublica called An Unbelievable Story of Wraith. T. Christian Miller co-wrote the article in 2015 with a reporter at the Marshall Project, which covers criminal justice. Their story includes top-notch police work in Colorado, which was critical to the arrest of a serial rapist. I spoke with T. Christian Miller when his first, uh, report was first published. T., welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Ryan. So this serial rapist had victims in two states, Colorado and Washington. He is serving a 300-year sentence at Colorado's Sterling Correctional Facility. And to understand this story, you have to understand how Mark O'Leary operated. He was meticulous. How so? He was a serial rapist in every sense of that term. And by that, I mean he had a real pattern that he would do uh, with each of his various victims. He would typically begin by spending hours uh, stalking them, essentially, learning their habits, actually breaking into their homes before the actual attack to learn details about them. When the attack happened, he would bring in uh, what he called a a, a rape kit, and, and this is sort of difficult to talk about, but he had cameras and material that he would use to assault the victims with. And then over a long period, a three-hour period, um, he would repeatedly rape uh, these victims, both in, as you pointed out, in the state of Washington and in Colorado. And he would usually end by saying, if you go to police, I will release the photos I've taken uh, to the internet to embarrass your children or embarrass your family. And that was a very clear pattern. He just did over and over again. He would make his victims shower with the idea of getting rid of evidence. And O'Leary deliberately targeted women in different police jurisdictions. Here in Colorado, that was in Golden and Westminster, Aurora, and then two different communities in Washington. Why the different jurisdictions? This, too, was part of how meticulous he was. Yeah, he had spent a lot of time uh, researching how police in America investigate rape. And he had learned as we have written a couple stories of it at ProPublica and the Marshall Project, that um, police often don't talk to each other in different jurisdictions. And so he would liberally go to each, uh, commit each rape in a different uh, law enforcement jurisdiction in the hopes that the law enforcement agencies wouldn't sort of talk to each other about the similarity rapes that were occurring in their own backyards. Uh, and he hoped that that would sort of basically throw police off his track. And it did for a long time. Jurisdictions weren't aware of what was happening in other places. Uh, You quote the rapist as saying that he would have been a person of interest, for instance, if Washington had paid more attention to the case of a young woman there. She's really the central character in this story. Uh, We'll call her Marie, as you do in the article. She was uh, O'Leary's first victim in 2008. She was 18 years old at the time and had lived in foster care for most of her life. After she was attacked, the police and people close to her, her former foster parents, became doubtful of her story. What made them doubt her story of rape? Yeah, that was kind of one of the most interesting parts of of the piece we did. Um, The foster mothers who had taken care of Marie both had seen at different times displays of her being sort of um, wanting attention, let's say, not too difficult in a lot of teenage uh, kids. But when the um, rape happened... 
both of the women responded to comfort Marie. Uh, they were both sort of taken aback by things Marie did that uh, didn't fit their idea of what a quote-unquote normal rape would look like. So they were thrown off, uh, for instance, by um, Marie seemed very f- emotionally flat and wasn't really screaming or, or running around tearing out her hair about what had happened. And so they saw that as being like, why aren't you sort of reacting more strongly to that uh, incident? And one of the things we get into an unbelievable story of rape is that there really is no stereotypical response to rape. It, mm-hmm. uh, women can have all sorts of a variety of reactions. Um, and the mothers in this case were, were sort of buying into an outdated stereotype about how a woman should react. So on that basis, they then contacted the police, who themselves had sort of similar questions and were operating a similar world of stereotypes about rape, and told them that they had some questions about Marie's story. Um, and the police told us that that kind of was what really motivated them to begin not believing Marie's story at all. And at that point in time, they, they began to believe that Marie was making up the story. And there are other behaviors that she engages in that make people doubt her story, but that you find are typical for rape victims, including confusing the finer points of the story. Their story may change over time, uh, which I suppose has something to do with the trauma they suffered. Yeah, one of the the things that's pretty well known now is that rape victims often also uh, end up suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder, the trauma of the assault itself is so powerful that it kind of actually affects the brain chemistry and how the brain is able to process information. So, for instance, some women during a rape can't remember the assault, the attacker's face, for instance, because they're focusing on, let's say, a lamp to kind of take their mind off of where they are so they can't actually describe the person who was attacking them. Um, or they remember things out of order and things don't come in the exact right order as, as they actually happened. And in this particular case, Marie made a which is, which is in retrospect, a pretty small error of recollecting when she was tied up that convinced the police that she must be um, lying because she had told two slightly different versions of how she was tied up and how she got, got freed. And she winds up actually being charged with filing a false report. How often does that happen? Yeah, that's one of the questions we tried to answer, Ryan. And it's not, nobody really keeps that data. What we know is that if you look at academic studies, the percentage of women or percentage of rape cases that are ruled, legitimately ruled as never having happened at all, hovers around 5%, 8%. It depends on the study, although there are studies which show much higher and as well as much lower. So that, that, we know false reports happen. We know they, they do occur. Hmm. Um, in this particular case, the extraordinary, the unusual thing at least was that she was actually arrested for false reporting. Um, again, we don't have a good sense of how many, how often that happens, but it's not super common because a lot of police agencies are, are reluctant to file a false reporting charge for a lot of good reasons we can talk about. So yes, in this case, the police went ahead and they filed a false reporting charge against her. It was a misdemeanor charge in the state of Washington, and she had to, to uh, deal with that. And as you say, uh, without having the specific numbers, we can, we can say that that's fairly rare uh, that a victim is arrested in that way. This story... Uh, an unbelievable story of rape, as you title it, is also about good police work, largely here in Colorado, particularly the work of Detective Stacy Galbraith in Golden. She has a simple rule when it comes to the credibility of rape victims. What is that rule? Yeah, that was the, uh, the, the really nice thing about this story. Was it was a story about how police in, in one uh, state had let a rapist slip through the cracks, and, and the police, various police agencies in Colorado had, had done quite the opposite. And Stacey Galbraith was a detective in Golden uh, who had one of the case, the rape cases, where uh, the individual had attacked a, a young engineering student. 
And the engineering student told this story, and, and I think some people may have thought the story was so fantastical in some ways because uh, it involved a stranger dressed in black breaking into her house. Whatever that case may be, Stacy didn't take it at all like that. She just um, had this rule that she told us that she listens to her victims and then she checks out the story. And even if it might sound strange or the victim might not be reacting in a way that um, some people might expect a right victim to react, her philosophy is just take it on its face as it is and then begin doing the detective work of checking out that story and can you verify that story, can you back up that story. Uh, and that's what she did. And it was through, gosh, a series of almost coincidences that she's able to link the rape uh, in her jurisdiction to others in Colorado and to begin to piece together that this is a serial rapist. Yeah, it was just uh, incredible detective work. Um, So when Stacy got uh, her case, which was in, in January of 2011, she went home that night to talk to her husband, David Galbraith, who works in the Westminster Police Department. And just by chance, the attacker had attacked a woman in Westminster uh, several months prior. So when Stacy was describing, you know, what the rape has, uh, her husband her, you know, was like, hey, I think we have a rape just like that or an incident very similar to that in um, Westminster. And that, that nighttime talk between spouses is what made Stacy the next day reach out to the Westminster Police Department and get in touch with um, a detective named Edna Hendershot who had handled this case, and they began to get together and compare notes. You said at the beginning of our conversation that this is something that's often lacking in law enforcement, communication among jurisdictions about cases that might be similar and point to cases of serial rape. And so this happened very unofficially between a husband and wife, as opposed to officially through, I don't know, computer systems talking to each other or something like that. Yeah, that's so. Uh, in this particular case, I would say that in looking at Colorado, Colorado does have, um, or at least the Denver area, Denver metro- metropolitan uh, police agencies, uh, have a system that is designed to sort of like overcome that, that hurdle, and they have sort of a joint listserv they all talk to. Oh. So in this case, in the first case, it was kind of an initial thing, but Edna had actually known about another case in Aurora that she had investigated with um, Scott Burgess, a detective in Aurora, and she had known about that through more of a formal sort of a, one police officer telling another police officer, hey, there's a similar case here. But it, all that aside, it was still an amazing bit of detective work to kind of bring all these cases together and understand that there was one person behind all these different attacks. And it involves all kinds of, of gumshoe work, uh, including looking at shoe prints and identifying what sneaker might have been involved in the crime. Eventually, this coalition of law enforcement in Metro Denver arrest uh, O'Leary. They search his computer. They find photos of victims. And this is what allows the Colorado detectives to identify the Washington case in which this young woman, Marie, has essentially recanted her story of rape. But they're able to find evidence that it in fact happened. Yeah, that was kind of the just uh, amazing moment of the story is that uh, they've arrested this guy, as you said, Ryan. The, the detectives are looking through files, pictures he has of his various victims, and they find this one picture, and one of the pictures he had taken was a picture of this woman's driver's license. And the Colorado detectives are looking at these, these images, and they say, who is this woman? And then, boom, there's her license plate, and it says Linwood, Washington, which was the town where she had the, the first victim of Mark O'Leary had been living. And they were able to call up the police there in Washington who had 
remember, had not believed uh, Marie, had actually filed false reporting charges against her, right. and they had to call these uh, police up and say, officers up and say, looks like she was telling the truth because we have uh, pictures of this guy actually assaulting her, and here's her driver's license. And very briefly, did Marie get some kind of settlement? What did she get for the dual pain and suffering of having gone through a rape and then essentially been arrested for false reporting when it wasn't false? Yeah, no, she got a settlement finally, about $125,000. She got an apology. The Linwood Police Department has expressed their embarrassment and apology for missing this incident. And Marie today is sort of soldiering on, um, finally having had her name completely cleared. And again, Mark O'Leary, the serial rapist, serving a 300-year sentence now at Colorado's Sterling Correctional Facility. Very briefly, T, it sounds like the takeaways here are the importance of law enforcement agencies uh, talking to each other and, in the case of investigating rape, trusting and verifying what victims say. Yes. I think the takeaway is when the victim walks in the door, treat that victim seriously until you have pretty firm evidence to do so otherwise. That is T. Christian Miller, senior reporter for ProPublica. He co-wrote the investigation, An Unbelievable Story of Rape, with Ken Armstrong of The Marshall Project. It won them a Pulitzer Prize. We spoke when the article was first published in 2015. It's now the basis for a new Netflix series, Unbelievable, which premieres Friday. Today, a visit to a brewery that has no beer yet. The place is still under construction and is set to open Saturday to coincide with what's billed as the country's first Latino beer festival. And the name of this is? Raices Brewing Company. Raices, meaning? Means roots in Spanish. Roots in Spanish. This is Jose Bateta. He's CEO of Raices. And why that name? We chose raíces because it's a play on words, not just roots, as in uh, tree roots, but actually it's looking into our cultural heritage. And speaking of cultural heritage, you're hosting Suave Fest, which is a Latin beer festival, the first one you think in the country. Yes, that's correct. So we're featuring over 10 Latino-owned breweries from around Colorado. There are over 10 Latino-owned breweries in Colorado. That's right. But my understanding is that Latinos are underrepresented in brewing in general. That's correct. Um, less than half of a percent of craft breweries in the U.S. are Latino-owned. Yet, when you compare to consumption numbers, we're talking about 15 to 20 percent. So it's that Latinos drink beer, but they aren't making the beer they drink. Exactly. And from... The Latinos who do drink beer, we're talking about 80% of them consume imported beers. Uh, The rest would be mostly uh, national brands like Coors and Budweiser. Meaning you see a lot of potential to introduce Latino customers to craft beers. Exactly. We really like the culture of uh, craft beers because it's more community-based, it's more local, it's more focused on the individuals that live around those breweries, and you see craft breweries participating in their communities and having an immediate impact 
on causes. So we really like that. Ah, and in fact, you were very intentional about where you located your brewery. This has been a historically immigrant neighborhood. We're sort of in the shadow of Bronco Stadium here. That's right. Uh, right across the street, we are on the Broncos south end. But then when we started to look more and more into the neighborhood, we started to see that Sun Valley is the most diverse neighborhood in Denver right now. 60% of the population are kids. And there's a lot of uh, single parents who live here. And that was great because we thought, hey, if we come in here and make an impact, part of the proceeds that we make, we can use them to do positive things in this neighborhood. Like what? So, for example, the Sun Valley Kitchen is located here, the Sun Valley Community Center. There's a lot of kids that we can help to give scholarships to, to uh, enter into entrepreneurship, apprenticeship uh, opportunities. There's a lot of impact that we can have here through those means. You just have to keep them from drinking. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, yes. And, and, and the culture that we're trying to follow with uh, craft beer is not about how many beers you can drink. It's more about a, a wine-like kind of culture where you, where you taste the beer and where you like to kind of take it in. So that's what we like about it. It's not, it's not about getting drunk. As beautiful as your place is, there's no actual beer here yet. Yet. Why don't you take us to one of the Latino breweries where the beer is flowing and that's a part of Suave Fest. Where should we go? Let's go to Dos Luces. Dos Luces. Two lights? Yes. Okay. We hop a few exits down I-25 to South Broadway and meet owner Judd Bellstock, who has drinks waiting for us. They are made of corn in the pre-Columbian tradition. That means before 1492. These beverages had nothing to do with Europe. The one on your left there is chicha, and that is Peruvian. It is made from malted blue corn, cinnamon, and clove. And it's an Inca tradition that goes back as as much as, if not further than, 3,000 years. My goodness. Well, let's give this a sip, shall we? Absolutely. Oh, it's so fragrant. It's really almost a, like a potpourri of flavors. Yeah, it's, uh, the spices really lend a nice element of, a, a nice complexity to it that is a replacement in kind of for hops uh, in, in these beers. So the corn is replacing the barley. Yes, indeed. And then these other ingredients that you listed there are replacing the hops. You got it, yeah. The corn is kind of the core grain. We use Colorado malted blue corn, uh, which is our twist on the traditional chicha. Usually, if you got chicha in Peru, it would be chicha de jora. The, the jora corn is those big white corn kernels, really high in starch, but not a ton of flavor. And we wanted to do something a little bit different and integrate both local and international ingredients. And so that's where the Colorado blue corn comes in. This word chicha, how is that spelled? Uh, C-H-I-C-H-A. Okay, and does that just mean beer? Uh, it means a lot of different things. Uh, So it means corn beer specifically, but it can also mean fruit beer, depending on in in parts of Chile and and southern Peru, you might have a a strawberry wine, essentially, low-alcohol wine, Mm. that is, that they might call chicha. In Venezuela, a chicha is completely unrelated. (laughs) It's, uh, milk and cinnamon beverage, kind of 
Like a horchata. Similar to a horchata, yeah. Now, what is this other... Is this a chicha as well, the second thing you've placed in front of me? That is a pulque. A pulque. Yeah. What is a pulque? So pulque is an Aztec tradition, and it's made from maguey sap. Same thing mezcal is made out of. Uh, And ours is a pulque beer, so it's malted blue corn, maguey sap, cinnamon. What should I be prepared to taste? The cinnamon? Uh, cinnamon and sour. Cinnamon it, and it sour? It is very similar to a sour beer. Oh, that's so interesting. It has a sour beginning and then almost an apple cider finish. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you got it. I call it a reverse sour because with most sour beers, what you'll have is kind of that sweet beginning with the, the malty sweetness hitting your tongue first and then a sour finish. And this is exactly the other way around. So, so nice I got buds. that right. You, good, good taste buds <laughs> on you. <laughs> is part of your goal simply to elevate this kind of brewing tradition in a state that, you know, pays attention to beer? That's precisely it. We consider ourselves a mission-based company, and our mission is to change the way people think about beer. And me and my co-founder, his name is uh, Dr. Sam Alcane. He's a professor of fermentation science at Cornell University. We have talked a lot about how what everybody thinks of as American beer, and specifically American craft beer, isn't really American. It's uh, Western European styles adapted to, you know, different American tastes. So when we started talking about Dos Luces, we talked about it in terms of let's make something that's a truly American beer. And America in the broad sense, meaning North and South. That's right. America does not just mean the United States. Exactly. Jose, I want to go back to the, the larger idea that Colorado certainly has a lot of Latino breweries and breweries that are making beer in ancient American tradition. What in general are the obstacles to Latino folks getting into the beer industry, do you think? Because nationally, the numbers are much lower. Well, it's not just uh, Latinos. It's basically all minorities. We're talking about women. We're talking about people of color. It's a barrier to entry like money, access to capital, access to resources. This is a very expensive enterprise for as small as you want to take it. There's enough uh, home brewers who do it for the love of it, who definitely want to take it to the next step. So what we're trying to do with uh, Suave Fest is to make people aware that there's these great breweries that exist. Some of them are in Metro Denver. You pointed out Atrevida, which is in Colorado Springs. Exactly. And these are just, you know, 10 breweries, and they all happen to be here in Colorado. But so far we've found 40 Latino-owned breweries all over the country, but when you compare it to the bigger number, which is over 7,000 craft breweries, that's a very, very small fraction of a percentage. So we definitely need more representation. Well, a sign that fall is almost here. I understand that Dos Luces has made, what is this? Pumpkin spice chicha. Pumpkin spice chicha. And you have high hopes for this. I, I do. So, personally, I despise pumpkin beers at this point. I think <laughs> 10 years ago, I loved pumpkin beers and then got over it. But because pumpkin and corn go well, so well together... It's so autumnal. <laughs> yes. I had to do it. Uh, and when I made it last year, we made it for Dia de los Muertos. So it didn't come out till November 2nd. But I really liked it. Yeah. I think it's the best pumpkin beer that I've ever had. But that's... 
that's my, my You're modest a little biased, opinion. Perhaps. Uh, yes. Uh, <laughs> so this year we wanted to make sure we made it in time to enter it into the Great American Beer Festival. Well, even though it's been hot as blazes, we're going to give this a try uh, in hopes that fall comes soon. <laughs> yes. Here we go. You know what's nice? It, it's got a little pumpkin, but I'm not being assaulted. It's not sort of the great pumpkin in Charlie Brown as far as taste goes. (laughs) Gentlemen, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. Thanks for chatting with us. We spoke with Judd Bellstock, owner of Dos Luces Brewery, and Jose Bateta, CEO of Raices Brewing, and founder of Suave Fest, which is billed as the first Latino beer festival in the country. The event is Saturday in Denver. I'm Ryan Warner. You've been listening to Colorado Matters from CBR News.